Hey, good morning, everybody. Grab your Bible and go to the Little Red Book of Jude in the New Testament, the Little Red Book of Jude, and turn there and hold that ready. Um, While you're turning there, I'll just remind you that what we're doing is we're involved in a sermon series called Urgent, and what we're doing is we're looking at the four one-chapter letters in the New Testament. We're looking at them because each one of these letters contains an urgent message for their readers. That's where the title comes from. This is the third week of the study so far. We've looked at the urgency of love from 2 John, the urgency of um, influence from 3 John, and today we're talking about the urgency of responsibility. I want to welcome all the folks across the street, the video venue. I hope you're having a great morning over there, and also all of you folks who are joining us online, wherever you might be, it's always a great, great joy to welcome you into our service. Um, I got to tell you, this morning that it became really clear to me throughout this week that this may be the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life, trying to preach one single message from the entire book of Jude because it's filled with so much information. I could probably spend, honestly, five or six weeks going verse by verse through this letter, but since I've already committed myself to this, then we need to do it. Let's not waste any more time. Let's stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word like we always do. Listen, this is going to be a little bit of a lengthy reading more so than what we normally do. If you, don't, if you don't feel like you can stand for it, that's fine. Don't worry about that. If you're a guest with us today, so glad you're here. This is what we do every week. We open up our Bibles, we make the public reading of Scripture part of our service, and then we talk about that Scripture. We talk about it in terms of explanation, we talk about it in terms of illustration, we talk about it in terms of application. That's what we do, that's who we are. So we're glad you're here. I hope you'll enjoy this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and denied Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know this, <coughs> excuse me, though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever." 
Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them to others. Show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Okay, that's it. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. I want to begin by giving you some basic information about this New Testament letter, and let me just preface this by telling you, and everybody look up here and listen close. There's no way, absolutely no way that I can come even close to explaining every detail of everything that we just read together. So I'm going to begin by giving you some basic information about the New Testament book of Jude, and then we'll go from there. First of all, Jude was written by a man named Jude who refers to himself, you saw there, as the brother of James. Now, most scholars believe that the James he's talking about here is the James who wrote the New Testament book of James, and they believe that Jude and James were brothers of Jesus, half-brothers of Jesus. In fact, I'm going to put a passage of Scripture up on the screen. Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 through 56 identify the fact that Jesus had brothers and sisters, that Mary and Joseph had children beyond Mary's birth of Jesus. His brothers are actually named in this passage. They're James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Judas would be the Jude who wrote the book of Jude, and his sisters are unnamed. Second, we know Jude was written to a church, but we absolutely have no idea which church. No way to know. And honestly, it doesn't really matter because in some ways at that day and age, it could have been written to just about any church. Third, Jude, this is interesting, is filled with a lot of Old Testament references. Now, that's significant because it tells us that his readers were probably Jewish, primarily Jewish believers instead of Gentile believers because Jewish believers would have been able to read and understand the references. Jude didn't go into any detail about the references, and so as he wrote them, he assumed, we have to believe that he assumed that just the mention of those those events or those names would cause his readers to understand immediately the context of each story and the point that he was trying to make. For example, just in one single verse, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in verse 11 alone, he refers to the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. Now, Jewish believers would have understood the reference for all of those things. The truth is, most of us, even some of us who've been raised in church all of our lives, probably have to be reminded of some of those stories, but Jewish believers who would have been familiar with the Old Testament writings would have understood these names and the meaning of the reference. The truth is, when you read the book of Jude, you see a lot of information about the Old Testament. The fourth thing, Jude wanted to write to the church about one thing, but found himself compelled to write about another. Look back at verse 3 because that's really the key verse. 
says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write. He was compelled. I felt I had to write and to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, I want you to listen to me. Let me make this really clear, really, really clear. While Jude wanted to write this letter that celebrated salvation, the gift of salvation, he realized when he sat down to do it that there was an urgent need in this church that absolutely had to be addressed, and here was the need. I'm going to explain it to you. Some people who had come into the church, they had insinuated themselves into positions of influence and leadership, and then they began to systematically try to tear the church apart, not by teaching bad or false doctrine, but by promoting an immoral lifestyle. And so Jude wrote this letter to the entire church, hoping that those who were sincere in their faith, especially those who were in positions of leadership, would wake up and see what was happening around them and take the appropriate action. There's a word that's often used to describe what was happening amongst, among these believers who received this letter. I'll put it up on the screen. You should write this down in your notes. It's the word apostasy. This is what was happening in this church that Jude <clears throat> was writing to. Apostasy was taking place there. The word apostasy simply means to fall away or to turn away from the truth. And I think you can see as you read the letter, I hope you noticed, Jude writes this letter with sharp, harsh language. Did you notice that? Sharp, harsh language, and that's indicative of how dangerous apostasy is in the life of believers. In fact, I read this letter, and I read the sharp, harsh language that Jude uses, and it's evident to me that he was writing to them about an urgent matter of life and death. I'm talking about spiritual life and death. I'm talking about eternal life and death. I'm not overstating that in my description. The problem was not that there were some individuals in the church who were emphasizing doctrinal differences. There will always be doctrinal differences among believers. As long as we're in this world, as long as the church around, there's always gonna, is around, there's always going to be doctrinal differences between people like you and me. We're going to disagree about what we understand the role of the sovereignty of God to be in salvation. We're going to disagree about whether or not it's possible for a believer to lose their salvation. We're going to disagree about what's the proper mode or method of baptism and what the real meaning of baptism is. And you can go on and on and on. There are always going to be doctrinal differences among God's people. But that's not what was going on here. They were attempting to sabotage the very foundation of the Christian faith as it's been taught from the beginning by Jesus and the apostles. They were attacking the character and the nature of God. They were attacking the saving work of Jesus, what his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead really meant. And they were attacking the doctrine of God's grace by deriding God's call and instruction to his people to live holy lives. And that's why Jude said in the latter part of verse 4, these are godless men. Notice this. How, how ironic is this that he's writing to a church and he's calling the leaders of a church godless, godless. He says, these are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that there were people in this church who were teaching others that they could do whatever they wanted to do, whether it was good or bad, whether it was uh, uh, somewhere in between good or bad, they could do whatever they wanted to do because the grace of God covered them. They could do whatever they wanted to do without any worry of consequence or without any fear of judgment or repercussion because the grace of God covered them. 
They took the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and they twisted it into something that was dangerous and they were spreading this teacher teaching to the believers in this church and it was causing them to fall away, to turn away from the truth. Let me try to give you a specific example of what that might have looked like. They would teach, for example, or they would not teach, for example, God calls us to holiness, but the reality for us in this world is sometimes we struggle with sexual sin, and so we need the mercy and the grace of God to help us experience victory in the midst of the struggle. They wouldn't teach that. Instead, they would teach, because of God's grace, you've been forgiven, you're covered, so you do whatever you want. You do whatever your body wants to do because it's all covered by grace. That means, uh, from their perspective, there was no such thing as sexual sin. You could do whatever you wanted to do without any worry about it. And they applied this abuse of the grace of God to literally every area of life and living. And this was the urgent need that Jude wrote to address. And this continues to be a problem in our world today. We live in a world today where there continue to be false believers and there continue to be false teachers who teach this kind of abuse about the grace of God. You know, let's all agree on something together this morning as we begin. One of the absolute best things about Christianity is that it teaches that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how many times you've done it, how many times you've fallen, it doesn't matter how ugly your sins are, you can be forgiven, you can be washed clean, and you can be made right with God. Somebody should say amen to that. That's one of the absolute best things about Christianity. That's what a personal faith in Jesus Christ offers to all men everywhere, regardless. But it is wrong. It is absolutely wrong to take the gift of God's grace and to twist it knowingly or unknowingly with good intention or with bad intention to justify a sinful life. And yet that's what people do. That was happening in the church that Jude wrote to and it continues to happen in the church today. I'm gonna tell you that I've had a front row seat to seeing this happen over and over again over the years as a pastor. I've seen people confronted about sin and I've seen them never once try to deny the reality of the sin, never deny that they were involved in the sin, but I've seen them go over the top trying to justify the sin. And this is what happens in the world today. So the question is, what are we to do? How do we battle this false teaching? How do we battle this apostasy? What are we to do when false believers and false teachers threaten the integrity of God's Word? What do we do when false believers and false teachers threaten the integrity of the Christian life? What do we do when false believers and false teachers threaten the integrity of the church of Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you two things, and they both come just literally from the words of the text. Right down next to number one, the first thing we do is we contend for the faith. That's number one, contend for the faith for the faith. Look back at Jude 3 and 4. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you, here it is, to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. Jude says, contend for the faith. Now, we need to understand, first of all, that when Jude uses the word faith, when he says contend for the faith, he's not talking about faith in the sense of belief, our belief. He's talking about faith in the sense of what we believe. When he says contend for the faith, he's talking about contending for our convictions, what our convictions tell us is true with respect to God and with respect to God's Word. And we can do this, all of us, as believers, if we do two things. Write this first one down. First of all, we need to know 
the truth. We need to know the truth about God. We need to know the truth of God's word. We can't contend for the faith if we don't know what's true. So we need to know the truth. And Jude emphasizes that in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you. And Jude really basically goes on from there and he gives his readers a history lesson about God that revolves around the truth that while God is a God of grace, he does not tolerate tolerate willful and deliberate sin, and he uses three examples or illustrations to remind these believers, these readers of that truth. First of all, he uses the illustration of the children of Israel when they were led out of Egypt to the promised land. Most of us are familiar with that story of how God's people were uh, enslaved in Egypt. Uh, In the beginning, it wasn't bad, but then they turned into slaves and their life was horrible and they cried out to God for a deliverer and ultimately God sent Moses to be their deliverer. And he went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh was initially hesitant, but ultimately God flexed his muscles through Moses and Pharaoh relented and he released the people and Moses led them to the edge of the promised land. But here's what happened. What happened is that all along the way after God had delivered them and all along the way after God God had demonstrated his strength and his faith and his provision for them over and over again. God's people grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. They got to the edge of the promised land and they refused to enter the promised land because they were, they were living by fear rather than by faith. And so God ran out of patience with some of them. And he said, this generation will not enter the promised land. You will all die in the desert and the next generation will inherit the land of milk and honey. And so their willful and deliberate disobedience and rebellion led to judgment and punishment. And then he uses another illustration that many of us may not be familiar with. He reminded them that when the angels rebelled against God and abandoned their positions of authority, they were cast into darkness. They were put into darkness. They were put into chains. Now, that might sound really strange to some of you, but here's the deal. The Bible does talk about this truth. Let me just take a minute and talk about it. The Bible talks about the truth that there was a time when angels rebelled against God. Now, let me tell you what I believe. I believe that those angels who rebelled against God are what we know as demons today. I believe that a demon, simple definition, is a fallen angel. And the truth is, God took some of those fallen angels who rebelled against him, some of those demons, and he punished them. Write down this reference, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned. And the Bible tells us that there are some angels that have been placed in dungeons, in chains, and they wait there until the day of judgment. And so there's another, another example of the fact that God doesn't tolerate willful disobedience forever. There's judgment and there's punishment. The third example he uses to remind them of this truth, that even though God is a God of grace, he doesn't tolerate willful and deliberate sin, is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. You'd have to go back and read that story yourself if you're not familiar with it. But the truth is, Sodom and Gomorrah were sinful cities. They were wicked cities. They were filled with wickedness. They could have been saved. If there were enough righteous people, they could have been saved, but there weren't enough righteous people to save them. And instead, they were cities that gave themselves over completely and unanimously to sexual immorality and perversion, and as a result, the cities were destroyed. So what's Jude doing here, friends? He's saying that there are consequences connected to our behavior. He's telling us that God pours out his grace and he pours out his mercy on his people, but when his people abandon him, when his people abandon his truth, when his people become involved in willful and deliberate sin, when they abuse his grace by saying, your commands, your instructions, they don't apply to me anymore because I've got some new definition or I've got some new interpretation of what it means to be a Christian. When that happens, you can be sure that God is going to give them a wake-up call, and sometimes that wake-up call is harsh. It's harsh. This is the truth of the Scripture. And so to 
contend for the faith, you've got to know the truth, and this is the first truth that you have to know, that God is a God of grace, but he will not tolerate willful and deliberate sin. The second thing you've got to do is this. You've got to exercise discernment with regard to false believers and false teachers. And Jude helps us to understand that by giving us several characteristics of false believers and false teachers. I don't have any time to really go through this in detail, but he mentions three things. These characteristics fall into three categories. He says false believers and false teachers can be identified by the way they speak. He says that in the latter part of verse 8, in verse 10, and in verse 15. He basically says they speak with slander, they speak abusively against spiritual things, and they speak abusively against things they don't understand. He said, number two, false believers and false teachers can be identified by the things they do. The first part of verse eight and verse 11, first part of verse eight, he says they pollute their bodies. They just, there's no restrictions. They do whatever they want. They satisfy and gratify every every want and every desire that they have. Verse 11, he says that they've taken the way of Cain. That means that they are living in open rebellion to God, that they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. That means that they have shown a willingness to compromise God's standards and God's truth in order to make money and they have gone the way of Korah's rebellion, that means they're filled with pride to the point of rebelling against God's leaders and ultimately rebelling against God himself. The third thing, he says, false teachers and false believers can be identified by the emptiness and the dissatisfaction of their lives. And you see that in verses 12 and 13. He said, there are clouds without rain blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. There are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved. And in the end, listen to me. I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you, but just bear with me. In the end, Jude makes it clear that God will judge and he will punish these people. He will judge and he will punish false believers and false teachers. And so this is how you contend for the faith, friends. This, is, this speaks to your life and mine right now today in 2016. You know the truth about God and you know the truth of God's word. And when you know the truth about God and you know the truth of God's word, that will help you identify and recognize the false believers and the false teachers that you come in contact with in your life. See how those two things work together? How, what's the only way to make sure that you recognize, recognize a lie when it comes your way? The only way to make sure that you can recognize a lie is by knowing the truth right? Everyone say right. It's the only way. And when you know the truth, somebody can give you a lie and they can give you a lie in a most impressive fashion. They can do it in the most convincing way. They can do an Academy Award performance in trying to convince you of a lie. But if you know the truth, none of that matters. And so this is what he's telling us that we need to do. We need to know the truth in order to see and expose the false believers and the false teachers. Now I'm going to push the pause button here for a moment after throwing all that at you. I'm going to talk to you about this from a very practical standpoint. Jude 3 says that the first thing we need to do is we need to contend for the faith. If we're going to battle apostasy, false believers and false teachers, the first thing we need to do is we need to contend for the faith. But here's the question I want to pose to all of us and all of us joining us across the street or online. How contentious should we be? How contentious should we be? The word contend implies that we as Christians have something worth fighting for. And this, quite honestly, is where we sometimes struggle. So let's begin by acknowledging something together, and that's this. Truth, by very definition and by nature, creates conviction. Truth leads to conviction. When we know the truth about something, it creates conviction in our lives and our hearts. And in this context, obviously, I'm talking about the truth 
of God and the truth of God's word. When you love the truth, when you value the truth, you find yourself sometimes in positions where you have to defend your convictions that are based on the truth. And that, quite frankly, is where many of us as Christians find ourselves today. We live in a world today where there is a nonstop, constant assault on truth around us every waking moment. And if you don't know that, then you are naive and deceived. And I say that with love this morning. Might not have sounded like it, but I say it with love. This is where we find ourselves today. And the world's not going to like it when you defend truth. They're just not. When I talk about the world, understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the world in the sense of the planet, the physical planet. I'm not talking about the world in the sense of people necessarily. I'm talking about the truth that the Bible tells us that there's a system at work in this world that is evil. And there's a system that's at work in this world that is constantly in opposition to God. Everything that God is for, this world system is against. This is what John was writing about in his epistle, his first epistle, when he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's talking about this world system. And again, if you don't recognize that it's at work in the world today, then you're naive. You've got your head buried in the sand. So the world's not going to like it when you stand up and you defend truth. And the devil's not going to like it when you stand up and you defend truth. When you contend for the faith by defending your convictions that are based on the truth of God and the truth of God's world, then, word, then you can be assured that there's going to be some pretty strong pushback from people who do not share your convictions with regard to the truth. And so when that happens, Christians like you and me, we usually respond in one of two extreme ways. The first one is to be mean and angry and hateful in our defense of our convictions. I don't really think I need to explain this. There are sadly mean, angry, hateful Christians in the world today. Honestly, I don't know if all of them are really Christians. But there are mean, angry, hateful Christians in the world today who are mean and angry and hateful in the way they defend their convictions based on the truth. I'm talking about extreme situations. I'm talking about people who say they are Christians who show up and protest the burial of men and women who died in, our, in service to our country. They protest their burial because they equate every bad thing that happens in the world to be connected to some level of tolerance for sin. So they show up and they protest funerals of servicemen and women with with signs that say things like God hates fags or thank God for dead soldiers or God is your enemy. We've seen that. It's repulsive. It's disgusting. Every, every part of it. That obviously is the extreme side of people who respond to the defense of their convictions in a mean and a hateful way. It's not always that extreme, but there are people who continue to do that in other ways too, angry ways. And you know what? We have to be careful about this. I'll be honest with you and tell you, I have to be careful about this because I can get so convicted, I can get so passionate about what I believe is the truth that I can maybe sound sometimes like I'm being mean or that I'm angry. I'm not. I'm just passionate about it. The second response, the second extreme response is to be just the opposite to be passive and overly accommodating. You know, when you, when you stand up and you defend your convictions based on the truth of God's word and you get pushed back from the world, then the second response, extreme response, is to begin to back off and to become passive and overly accommodating to people for the sake of harmony. I want you to know this morning, I'm not trying to upset or offend anyone here, so listen to me close. I know and believe 
that the Christian life is first and foremost a life of love. I know the Bible teaches us that over and over again, literally from cover to cover. I know this. We talked about this in depth just a couple of weeks ago. The very first message in this urgent series was called The Urgency of Love. We looked at 2 John, and John reminded us to love one another. It reminded us of a command that's been around from the beginning, the command to love one another. The Bible tells us we need to love God. We need to love one another. We need to love ourselves, love our neighbor. You can go on and on and on. The Christian life is a life of love. But I also told you when we looked at that in 2 John that after John tells us or reminds us to love one another, he goes on to make sure that we do it correctly by telling us what love is. And he says, love is fundamental. He says, love is obedience. He says, love is truth. And he says, love is personal. He says, love is truth. And I told you when we went through that message that that means that love is inseparably linked to the truth. So as we love one another and as we love others, we do it with a commitment to honor the truth and we do it with a commitment to always tell the truth. Love, the kind of love that we're instructed to have for one another and for the world and the scriptures, love, that love never sacrifices the truth. Never. But sometimes in an effort to separate ourselves from the mean and angry responses to the issues of the day, we embrace a misplaced tolerance of things that are wrong in the name of love. And listen, first of all, I'll tell you this, I get that. I do. I get that. The last thing in the world that I want is to be identified as a Christian with someone else who calls themselves a Christian, but every time they open up their mouth, all they do is spew out mean, hateful, angry, judgmental things. That's the last thing in the world I want, is to be associated or connected to somebody like that. But... If we believe that love is truth, like the Bible says, then we cannot take a position of tolerance in the world to the neglect of truth. And what's even more important, we can't change the truth, which is what some people knowingly or unknowingly are trying to do. You probably haven't seen this or not, but I came across this video that's kind of making its way across the internet recently that's simply called, I'm a Christian, comma, but I'm not. And on this video, there are six people, there are five young women and one young man who make the statement in the beginning, I am a Christian, I am a Christian, but I'm not. And they go on to say what they're not. For example, I'm a Christian, but I'm not homophobic. I'm a Christian, but I'm definitely not perfect. I'm a Christian, but I'm not closed-minded. And then they go on. I'm not unaccepting. I'm not uneducated. I'm not judgmental. I'm not conservative. I'm not ignorant and more. The next part of the video is I'm a Christian, but I am. And they talk about the things that they, they do embrace. I'm a Christian, but I am accepting. I'm a Christian, but I am queer. I'm a Christian, but I am gay. I am a feminist. They say that three times. I'm a Christian, and I do believe in science. I'm a Christian, and I'm not afraid to talk about sex. I'm a Christian, and I love me some Beyonce. I am a Christian, and it's just, it is what it is. The final part of the video is basically, what do you want people to know about Christianity? One young woman responds like this. A lot of people think Christianity ruins people, but to me, I think it's people that are ruining Christianity. You never really see the good that happens. You only see the hypocrites and the people who put themselves on a higher pedestal. There are a lot more responses. Let me just mention one more. One young woman said this is what she wanted people to know about Christianity at its core. Christianity at its core is really about love and acceptance and being a good neighbor. 
Now, I think I understand the spirit or the motivation behind making a video like that, but I've got to tell you this morning that it troubles me on many levels. I could have shown the video, but honestly, I was afraid I would show the video and somebody might not really understand it and even applaud, and I did not want that to happen because there's so many troubling things about this video. First of all, absolutely no mention of Jesus. None. And when you build your faith around what kind of Christian you are not, your faith is probably not being built around Jesus. Second thing, nothing original about this. I'm sure whoever came up with the idea or the concept of making a video like this thought that it would be clever and thought that it would be original, but it's actually not. I've actually heard and read something similar in, of all places, the Bible. We go to Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Jesus tells a parable one day. He says, one day two men went up to the temple to pray. Do you recognize this? He said one was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. He said the Pharisee began to pray first. Do you remember how the Pharisee prayed? The Pharisee prayed, Lord, I thank you that I am not. That's how it started. Lord, I thank you that I am not. He went on to say that I am not. A robber. I'm not like other men. That's the first thing that he said. He said robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And he said, or even this tax collector. He said what he did, how he fasted, how he prayed, what he gave. Let me tell you something. No one can or should ever give a testimony or make a confession like that because we as Christians, we do not measure ourselves against one another. We as Christians, we measure ourselves against Christ. And you know what happens next? We measure ourselves against Christ when we do that with open, sincere hearts. You know what happens next? We weep for shame and then we ask him for forgiveness which is basically what the tax collector did in Jesus' story. In contrast to the Pharisee, the tax collector stood at a distance, and he wouldn't even look up to heaven, Jesus said, and he beat his breast, and he said over and over again, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what he said. The third thing that troubles me about that video is it's all built around the false pretense that Christianity isn't an offensive faith, but it is. Do we understand that this morning? It is. It is. One young woman said that she wanted people to know this about Christianity. Again, at its core, it's really about love and acceptance and being a good neighbor. Let's just talk about that for a moment. I, I, that creates a question in my mind. As important as those things are, please don't misunderstand me this morning. They should be a part of our lives as believers. Love and acceptance and being a good neighbor, those are all a part of our lives as Christians. But let me ask you, is that what Jesus died on the cross for? Love, acceptance, and being a good neighbor. Is that why Jesus allowed himself to be beaten and brutalized and murdered on a cross? Is that what countless men and women have given their lives as martyrs for over the years? Love, acceptance, and being a good neighbor. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4, says this about Jesus. Jesus. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died on the cross for sin. And history is filled with men and women whose pronouncements against sin and subsequent proclamation that salvation is found in Jesus alone led them straight to death, straight to martyrdom. Christianity is an offensive faith, and we don't have the freedom to change that or soften it. We just don't. I understand that there are a lot of people in the world who are drawn to Christ. They're drawn to what Jesus offers. They're drawn to his love and his mercy and his grace. They're drawn to the relationships and the fellowships that Jesus, and the fellowship that Jesus creates. But for whatever reason, they're unwilling to accept him on his terms. But Jesus says that's the only way you can do it. He never gives us the freedom to change the terms. So what do we do? You know, these are the two extreme responses. When the world pushes back every time we try to defend our convictions based on faith and truth, what do we do? We love people because that's the command of the Scripture, but we honor the truth and we tell the truth and we do it in as loving a way as possible. I can stand up here this morning and say with integrity, what I mean by that is I have searched my heart about this. I am not misleading you in any way, shape, or form. I thought about this for a long time this week. I can stand up here this morning and say with integrity that I don't hate anyone, no one in the world. I'm not, I'm not trying to make myself out to look like something that I'm not, and so in the spirit of complete transparency, I'll tell you there are people in the world that I don't like. In fact, there are people in the world that I can't stand to be around. And because of that, I choose to never be around them. I know preachers that I don't like, and I can't stand to listen to a word come out of their mouth. There are people who have hurt me over the years, who've tried to damage my my reputation. There are people who have lied to me, who have betrayed me, who have brought emotional pain and suffering to my family, and some of them have done it from a deluded sense of self-righteousness, which to me makes it even worse. But I don't hate anyone. I hate cancer. I hate the unfair nature of life. I hate rain. (laughs) I hate flight delays. And I hate the times in my life when I've had to look somebody in the face and say something like this, this is not right. I can't agree with this. I can't approve of this. My conscience won't allow me to because my conscience is shaped and influenced by what I consider to be the absolute truth of God's word. This is my worldview. This is where it comes from. Every one of us has a worldview. We have a a way that we judge and evaluate life, and my worldview comes through the lens of God's word. It's naive to think that you can be faithful to the message and the life of Christ and not offend the world. It's naive to think that. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Jesus said in John 15.18, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. We're not called as believers to change or alter the message of Christ or the truth of God's word to make it less contentious. We are called to contend 
for the faith, which means there are times we have to defend the truth of God's word. The big issue that we're all aware of right now is an issue related to gender identity and what bathrooms somebody should be able to use, either associated with the gender that they were born with or the gender that they identify with. And I've heard and I've seen and I've read all these, all these things and all these statements, some by well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians that they feel like reflect the kind of love that we're to have in the world today. But let me tell you what should be our first concern as Christians. Our first concern should be that gender issues are tied to biblical truth. And the blurring or the changing of gender lines is nothing more than moral relativism. Moral relativism is deciding what's true, not based on anything that's absolute truth, but based on history or culture or your personal feelings. That's moral relativism. We need to understand that the fight against this gender issue is first and foremost a fight against the sovereignty of God. And I don't use the word fight in in the wrong kind of way. The issue is first and foremost an issue related to the sovereignty of God Because what could be more rebellious than to speak against God by saying, you made a mistake when you created me. When Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14 says that you knit me together in my mother's womb that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And I don't say that denying the fact that this is a very real issue and challenge and struggle for some people in the world today. You need to hear my heart, my words. I do not say or think that it's not but we were designed by God, and a part of that design inherently is our, our gender, the gender that he created us with. It's one thing to disobey God in our behavior. It's another thing to deny him in his sovereignty and his omniscience in the way that he created us. We need to contend for the faith. And I'm out of time, and I've still got a second point. But Brian, you come because I'm going to close. Just write down real quickly, just the second thing that we need to do is we need to build, you need to build yourselves up. That's what, that's the language that Jude used in verse 20. And really from verses 17 through verse 23, he tells us that we build ourselves up in by doing three things or making sure we don't do three things. Number one, in verses 17 through 19, he said, don't let anything get between you and Jesus. He said, false teachers and false believers, they try to divide you, but don't let anything get between you and Jesus. Number two, he says in verse 20, don't let anything get between you and your spiritual growth. Listen to me, friends. You have a responsibility for your spiritual growth. I have a responsibility every week when I stand here. I have a serious, serious responsibility before God, and I take it seriously. But you have a responsibility that's greater than mine. You have to take responsibility for your spiritual life. And if all you do is come to church from week to week, and you sit and you listen, you go home, and that's all you do, you're not doing what you need to do to make sure that you're growing spiritually. There's more to it than that. So don't let anything get between you and your spiritual growth. And finally, and this is so important, especially with everything that I've said, listen to this. Jude says, don't let anything get between you and a life of mercy, verses 21 through 23. Because this is the heart of God. We speak truth, but we do it with love. We speak truth, but we're merciful. We speak truth, but we have compassion for people. I don't hate anyone. We should be able to say that, all of us as believers. We don't hate anyone. 
We just love the truth because we know it's the truth that changes and transforms your life. We need to contend for the faith. 